Okay, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for our sermon text this morning, and I'll begin reading in verse 12. First Corinthians six twelve. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word. And in fact, today's text is like a granite boulder jutting out into the ocean. It was set in place long ago when the waves of worldly values pounded mercilessly and repeatedly against the coastline of God's moral righteousness, and this text and the principles it expounds remain to this very day, steadfast through the storm swells, through the hurricanes, through all of the pounding of the waves unmoved by the mighty ocean of rebellion down through the ages. It's true that the waves of culture look a little different today than they did in the days when Paul wrote this letter. The sand of the shoreline has changed a little bit. The relentless tides ebb and flow from slightly different angles, but God's granite truth still stands. And what about us? We can either stand on that rock or we can be cast against it by the destructive waves of the culture around us, but God's truth stands. You see, while sexual sin has been a problem for every generation, our own times have assaulted the teachings of the Bible like never before to devastating effect. The hurricane of worldly lies is bearing down on us. I mean, just think about it. Medical advances, uh, while certainly a blessing, have nullified the many physical consequences of immorality. The internet, while certainly a blessing in many respects, have, has sort of opened the floodgates of pornographic filth streaming into the eyes and ears of even the young. And, and many of us are, frankly, unprepared to stand in the face of this onslaught. 
So we try our best to, to live with it. We explain it away. We minimize it. We keep it in a compartment locked away from our friends and family. It's our own private little shrine in our hearts. And it's killing us. When it comes to the topic of sex in our culture today, the, the fact is most people are operating on the basis of a bundle of lies. And we need the truth because these Lies are deadly. They're satanic. Somebody needs to expose them. Somebody needs to show us a better way so that we can walk in all that God has for us. And, and that's what Paul does in this passage. By the way, let me make a commitment to you. Uh, in our culture, you'll find, you probably have noticed, that uh, the topic of sexuality is treated crassly or as a clinical matter. You either get filth or you get dispassionate, technical jargon borrowed from a pamphlet you'd find in a doctor's office. That's kind of what we get in our world today. And I just want to point out that the Bible doesn't approach this topic in either of those ways. Uh, the Bible's neither crass nor clinical. It doesn't avoid the topic either. It's not prudish or squeamish about it. No, the biblical writers discuss matters pertaining to sexuality, but they do so with respect, with poetry, with euphemism. By the way, the, the point of that euphemistic language that we find in Scripture, it's not to be prudish or Victorian. It's because our affections, our passions, our ears are fragile, and they don't work right when it comes to this topic when they are beaten down and buffeted by salacious language. We need to keep them from being calloused. See, this topic is like fire. It's very powerful. It's very useful, very beautiful, very dangerous. You can't even handle it without taking precautions, and that's my commitment to you. Uh, whenever these matters come, come up on a Sunday morning, my aim is to follow the example of the biblical writers. So you're not going to hear from me crass language just to get laughs or listens or clicks. I'm not going to be clinical about it either. That's part of our problem, as we'll see. But I'm not going to avoid it. I'm going to try my best to treat a powerful topic with the respect that it deserves. So with that being said, let me tell you the basic message of this passage. What's the point that Paul is trying to get across? It is this. Sex is never casual. Sex is never casual. And we're going to see that as we work through the passage to expose five specific lies that are almost ingrained in our culture, and we're going to try and replace those lies with the truth that Paul expounds here in this passage. Here's lie number one from verse 12. Lie number one, sexual integrity is optional. Sexual integrity is optional. We live in a time in which reserving sexual expression for the marital union between husband and wife is the exception, not the rule. Even among professing Christians, I'm, I'm sure that you know this is true, but if you don't, there are studies that bear this out, surveys that people have done, apparently fewer than 10%, 10% of professing believers surveyed in connection with the dating website christianmingle.com shared that they intended to wait till they were married to have sex. Now, that's professing Christians. I have to be honest. I knew things were in bad shape, but nine out of ten unmarried Christians are planning to engage in immorality, at least connected with that particular website. That's 
What's going on? They're believing a lie. They're believing this lie that sexual integrity is optional. Here's how the Corinthians put it. Paul quotes them in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Everything is permissible. Certainly this slogan, apparently repeated in the church at Corinth, was being applied across a multitude of issues, a spectrum of life issues, sexuality being only one of them. But, but what is its significance? What, what are the Corinthians trying to say? Simply this. Many of the Corinthian believers were reasoning that since Christ had kept the law for them, since Christ took the curse of the law from them, then the commands of God did not apply to them. They were free from the law's demands, free from the law's curse, and therefore free to do whatever they wanted. If they wanted to be sexually pure, fine, that's okay. You can choose to be sexually pure. If they wanted to sleep with prostitutes, yes, that's what was going on among the believers in the city of Corinth. That was fine too. It was just a casual, unimportant decision. All things are lawful. And Paul says that statement, at least how you're applying it, is a lie. In, in fact, it frames the issue in completely wrong terms altogether for two reasons. First of all, not all things are helpful. Not everything builds me up. Not all things are beneficial or edifying. That, that would be like going to your local fire station and asking, am I allowed to burn down my own house? That's a, sorry, that's a stupid question. There's probably a statute on the books preventing people from doing that because of, you know, people. But the point is, it wouldn't be beneficial for you to do that. Why would you do that? Uh, it, it wouldn't be helpful. Don't ask, am I allowed to engage in fornication? Ask what lifestyle is going to serve me, build me up? What lifestyle is going to serve others, build them up? What lifestyle is going to contribute to the health and the godliness and the eternal joy of the greatest number of people? A lifestyle of sexual sin? No. A lifestyle of sexual integrity? Yes. But there's an even more powerful reason why it's a lie to say that sexual integrity is optional. Simply put, freedom for sin is actually slavery to sin. Freedom for sin is actually slavery to sin. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. He says, I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be enslaved by anything. Actually, in Greek, this is sort of a play on words. The word lawful in verse 12 and the word dominated or the word be enslaved, uh, they're actually, they come from the same root. And so that's why commentator Anthony Thistleton translates it this way. Liberty to do anything but I will not let anything take liberties with me. This is what sexual sin does. It promises freedom, it promises fulfillment, but ultimately it shackles us in slavery and it starves us from real joy. Imagine someone going around bragging that they were free to sell themselves into slavery. Hey, you can't tell me what to do, I'm free. I, if I want to sell myself into slavery, I'm free to do that. Ridiculous. Imagine someone bragging about the fact that they could starve themselves. Hey, don't tell me I have to eat. I don't have to eat. I can starve myself if I want to. But why would you? That doesn't make sense. See, Christian, it's true that if you are in Christ, if you're really in Christ, then the curse of the law 
cannot touch you. It's true that Christ kept the law on your behalf. In this respect, you are free from the law. But it doesn't mean that living righteously is optional. Because if you choose to sin in this way, you are going to tear yourselves apart and others too. All things are lawful, but I'm not going to be enslaved by anything, Paul says. Isn't this what we've seen on a large scale in society? Sexual sin has created dissatisfaction in marriage. It's, It's caused widespread Divorce, which leads to poverty, greater violence against children, fatherlessness, mental health crises, the like to which the world has never seen. There's absolutely a connection to sexual immorality in all these societal ills. It's a fact. Isn't that what we see on the individual level too? Men and women addicted to sexual sins like porn or prostitution, pressured by their carnal lust to seek a stronger and stronger high, further and further from the place of repentance, collapsing in upon themselves. They're not free. They're not living up to their full potential as a creature of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're they're enslaved. They aren't living their best life. They're a shell of who they could have been. See, that's a lie. Sexual integrity is optional. No, it's not. Not if you really want to be free to be all that God has created you to be. Not if you really want to be full and satisfied. That's line number one, but let's move on to line number two. Here's line number two from verses 13 through 14. I should use my body before I lose my body. I should use my body before I lose my body. Here in these verses, Paul addresses another slogan often repeated among the believers at Corinth. Now, uh, if you were following along, uh, you may have noticed this. In my translation of the Bible that I have in front of me, uh, the translators chose to close the quote at the, uh, after the word food. Food is for, meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and they close the quote right after that word food. I, I don't think that that's right, and there are some translations that, that disagree. They close the quote at the end of the next phrase. Uh, and God will destroy both one and the other. And I think that's what the Corinthians were saying. They were saying, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God's going to destroy both of them. And Paul's saying that. Essentially, this is what they're saying. They're saying that the human body is designed for sexual immorality. And that sort of rings true, doesn't it, by personal experience? Uh, A lot of people think that. They think, hey, if I'm hungry, I'm going to eat some food. If I'm hungry for sexual satisfaction, I'm going to go out and find it. It's because my body is built that way. That's who I am. In fact, most people would say that sexual taboos and expectations in Western culture are constructs, and and, and many of those have been put in place by the powerful to oppress the weak, and they're dangerous, and they're unhealthy, and what we really need to do is advance beyond those things as a culture because the body is really meant to express itself in this way. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. And then the second part of their statement is also important because what they're saying is, guess what? What I do with my body doesn't really matter anyway because one day my body's going to be destroyed and it doesn't matter. It's going to be gone. Like one day I'm going to be old and sick and I'm going to die. My spirit is going to live with God. My soul is going to fly away to God. But my body is going to be left and it's going to just decay and it's going to turn back to the dust. So why does it matter what I do with my body? It's going to go away anyway. God's going to destroy both of these things. This is a sinister, sinister 
lie. In antiquity, Platonic philosophy had made its way into popular thinking, and uh, basically the upshot of that was uh, one of the powerful features of that was a, a kind of dualism, this belief that there was a distinction between the realm of the spirit and the realm of the physical, and those two are distinct, and they don't cross paths with one another. And for many people living in ancient society, the physical realm was considered less than. It was considered evil even. So it's like my body's already existing in this evil realm, so what I do with it doesn't really matter, and it's just going to burn up anyway. This is a powerful teaching in the days in the New Testament, even though it contradicts the Bible, but isn't it ironic that we've almost come full circle on this in recent centuries? Nowadays, most of us believe the same thing. We believe that our body is just a clump of chemicals. It's just, a, it's just a bag of cells. And what we do with it doesn't have any moral significance. It's just organs functioning together because of millions of years of impersonal processes of mutation and natural selection. It, it doesn't matter. It's just a casual issue. If you want to hack it up with plastic surgery or mutilate yourself in order to become a different gender, that's fine because it doesn't ultimately matter as long as that's something that you want to do. There's nothing special about your body, and there's certainly nothing special about sex. And by the way, this life is all there is, so you'd better get what you can while you can. You'd better enjoy it while it lasts, because once you reach the end of your life, that's it. Your body is done. Use it before you lose it. Even Christians have embraced this kind of philosophy to a point. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been at a funeral, and, and people look at me, and, and they say, well, that... That's not him. That's just a shell. You know, he's with God now, and, and that's my hope, and that's kind of it for them. And, it, and, it, and it's like, I get what you're saying, but, but no. The hope of the, the good news is not that, it, it's not that I'm going to be, uh, it, it's not that I shed my body. It's that my body is going to be resurrected. Paul has to correct the Corinthian believers. He says, first of all, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what that means is for us to think that we can consume sex as we consume food is wrong because God is the one who designed our bodies and he didn't design them for illicit sex. He designed them for marriage. He designed them for a one flesh relationship with a spouse until death, not for immorality. And secondly, he says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Did, did you know that the body that you're destroying is going to be resurrected and you will live forever somewhere? This is what the word of God teaches. This is a core teaching of Christian doctrine. Not that when we die, our soul will go to heaven, but that when Christ returns, our bodies will be resurrected and we will live with Christ forever in a newly created earth. That's the hope of the gospel that we will have bodies. Now, Paul's going to talk more about that in 1 Corinthians 15. You say, are you saying that if I commit sexual sin, it's going to ruin my resurrection experience? No, that's not the point that Paul is making. His point is that your body, listen, your body is worth way more than you're assigning the, the value to it because it's going to last forever. You 
are going to live forever. You're going to be raised up. And so don't dismiss the value of your body. Don't say it's no big deal. It's just a casual thing. You should know that it is a big deal. Sex is never casual because the body that you are giving away is for the Lord and it's going to be with you in, into eternity. It's a priceless part of you. You'd better take care of it. So that's line number one. Sexual integrity is optional. Lie number two, use it before you lose it. And then lie number three, what I do with my body is no one else's business. What I do with my body is no one else's business. We see this in verse 15. Uh, Paul asks the same type of question three different times. He says, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? There's uh, certain truths that the Corinthian believers were missing. They should have known these things, but they don't, or at least they're not taking them into account. And the first of them is here in, in verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? What does that mean? That word member has sort of lost its meaning over the years. He's not saying that we belong to the Christ club or something like that. He's saying that if you are in Christ, you are Christ's limbs and organs. Like you are part of Christ's body. The Corinthians may have said what many of us are tempted to say and what I've heard many people say to me. What, what I do with my body doesn't impact anybody else. Why do you care what I'm doing with my body? It doesn't matter to you. It's none of your business. And Paul says, no, it is somebody else's business because you're part of somebody else's body. You're part of the body of Christ. All of this is a lie. What you do does impact others. I mean, that's just the practical reality that you can see for yourself. Think about the uh, pornography that we watch and its impact on society. You think you're alone, but the industry you're participating in has a huge economic and cultural impact. It contributes to human trafficking. It's a, it contributes to a greater risk for sexual abuse, a greater risk of addiction and all the accompanying behaviors that make such things so devastating for the individuals and the families that are involved in this. Think about how your choices affect your spouse, your future spouse, your children. Do you really think that your immorality is not going to affect them? That's just not reality. Everyone knows it will. You're going to be more likely to be dissatisfied in your marriage, less equipped to deal with conflict, angry all the time. Your kids are going to see it all. They're not dumb. And then, of course, you're creating a vulnerability in your marriage that could well end up in divorce. And many of you know this by experience. The tremendous psychological and spiritual suffering you'll put yourself through, you'll put your spouse through, you'll put your kids through if your actions end your marriage. I mean, think about how tenuous that relationship already is with the trials of life the trials of not having enough money, the trials of trying to raise children, the trials of sickness, the trials of uh, poverty or prosperity, and then I'm going to add immorality into the mix? Why would you do that? This idea that my sexual sin, what I do with my body, is no one else's business is a lie. But Paul actually takes it further than that. He says that the body you're using to commit immorality is actually a part of the body of Christ. 
If you're a believer, you're in Christ. This is one of the central tenets of Paul's theology. If you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, he's constantly saying, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're united to Christ, you're one with Christ, Christ is in you. And Paul says, you are really in Christ to the point where even your body is a part of who he is. You are the limbs and organs of Christ. And Paul says, don't you know that? What he's saying is the Corinthians' lifestyle decisions reveal the fact that they aren't taking this reality into account when it comes to practical matters. In fact, if you really let that sink in, what this means is that when you commit fornication of any kind, you are actually bringing the body of Christ into that act. You are violating the body of Christ. You are implicating the Lord Jesus in something that he abominates. Sex is never casual. It's never unimportant. It is unfitting for you, Christian, because the body you use to commit this sin is actually a part of the body of Christ. So instead of trying to run from that truth, instead of trying to suppress that truth, why not, folks, embrace that truth? Why not rest in that truth? Why not rejoice in that truth? See, our approach to sexuality needs to be just as rooted in the gospel as everything else we do. The good news is not that your body is bad and worthless, but guess what? One day you'll die and you'll be free from your body and live with God forever in heaven. You'll be sort of like a friendly ghost. The good news is not that God doesn't care about your body. He just cares that you believe the right doctrine and you say the right things and you go to the right church and you put a few dollars in the plate and you do all the right rituals. That's not the good news. The good news is that God was so zealous, so intensely interested in saving all of who you are that he sent his only son in the flesh with a human body, with a human brain, so that Jesus of Nazareth might live in obedience for you and die for you and be raised from the grave for you so that all who believe in him might be united to him, body and soul, so thoroughly that what Christ did, you did. Where Christ went, you are going to go. And where you go, Christ says, you are one with him. That's good news. In his glorious, unfathomable mercy, Christ himself joins with sinners to the maximum degree. He owns you, he names you, he claims you, he loves you, he isn't embarrassed by you. Your body isn't a dirty dish rag to be thrown into the garbage heap. It's a part of you, and if it's a part of you, then it's a part of the body of Christ. He values you. He treasures you, and he wants you to be holy. By the way, it's his business. It's his right to see that you walk in holiness and obedience. So to say that your body isn't anybody else's business, frankly, that's just not true. It's a lie. It's a lie from the pit. Christ doesn't want to be dragged into immorality. He doesn't want to be violated against his will. Please pursue sexual wholeness because when you don't, you are violating the very limbs and organs of the Lord Jesus Christ. Line number one, sexual integrity is optional. No, it's not. Line number two, I better use it before I lose it. No, your body's going to last. It's built for God and it's built to last forever. 
Line number three, it's nobody else's business what I do with my body. Not true. Your body is a part of the body of Christ. And then notice from verses 16 through 18, line number four. Casual sex is fun and healthy. Casual, casual sex is fun and healthy. That's a lie. As a society, we bend over backwards to convince ourselves that we can enjoy the pleasures of immorality without any consequences in the spiritual or the emotional realm, that it can be merely for fun with no negative impact on our lives, that it's actually healthy because it's a way to explore our true selves and sort of express those desires and relieve stress and express our feelings. But of course, all of that is a lie. And it's a lie that even the Corinthian believers, some of them anyway, have been telling themselves. Now, you've probably noticed I've been talking about sexual immorality in general as a generic topic, and Paul seems to be talking about something more specific. He's talking about prostitution. Is it really legitimate to take what he's saying and apply it more generally? I think it is, and I'll explain why. Think about the advances in medicine and technology that have taken place in the last 60 years or so. And you're going to need to keep this in the back of your mind here in chapter 6 and when we get into chapter 7. But think about what happened in the 1960s. Now, women can take a pill that prevents them from getting pregnant. That's a new thing. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. I'm not commenting on that. I'm just saying it's new, it's different, and it's changed the way that we live. Uh, the availability of abortion has increased in recent decades, and it's much less risky physically to the mother than it was at any time previous. That's a major change. DNA testing is a new thing, and it's made it possible to, 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 to prove whether a specific man is the father of a child or somebody else. That's new. And of course, there's a lot of wonderful advances in dealing with STDs. That's new. And I'm not saying that's bad. There's still a risk, of course, but they're much less of a risk. Even things like HIV are not nearly as debilitating or deadly as they were just 30 or 40 years ago. So think about the changes that have taken place in our lifetimes. So what that means is that we are living in a world in which two strangers can quote-unquote hook up without risking their own physical health or the risk or the risk of bringing a child into the world. At least uh, that risk has, has been mitigated enough to where we mostly, mostly feel like it's a manageable risk. That's never been that way before a generation ago, okay? Before the 1960s, none of that was true. And what that meant was sexual immorality was extremely dangerous, especially for women. So fathers were probably a lot more protective of their daughters back then, uh, young men, they had a, a, a sense of societal pressure. If they got someone pregnant, they were kind of influenced by society to sort of take on responsibility. The stakes seemed higher. And in antiquity, this is one of the reasons why in a city like Corinth, if a man wanted to engage in casual sexual activity, he didn't get out his iPhone and click on the you know, dating app and just scroll through. He would visit the brothel. Uh, because the average woman wasn't going to be interested in sleeping around. So he would have had to take advantage of these women who were in many cases forced to go along with it. That's just the harsh reality of ancient culture. And it was a very casual thing. It was a business transaction. Sure, there, there were probably connections to the idol temple, but really that was just a pretext for people doing what they wanted to do in a city like Corinth. But Paul says this idea 
that you, men, can go out and have casual sex, consequence-free, is a mirage. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. What's he saying? He's saying that among all the reasons why we might conclude that prostitution specifically and immorality in general are out of bounds for a believer, consider this one. When you sleep with that girl, you are joining yourself to her at a fundamental level, at the level of identity. You are mingling yourself with her. By the way, as much as we might suppress this truth, it is absolutely undeniable. Apologist Nancy Piercy makes this point in her excellent book, Love Thy Body. She cites personal testimony and academic studies that all agree casual sex is a myth. Sex is never casual because it creates a profound union with the person you don't even know, and the psychological effects that that has on you are devastating. Young people, don't believe the lie that casual sex can be fun and healthy. It is profoundly destructive on so many levels. But notice Paul's reasoning, and this, is, this, this was shocking to me. If you Think about this. If you were to try to convince somebody that sexual immorality was wrong, how would you do that? How, what kind of reasons, what kind of rationale would you cite? If it were me, what I would try to do is point out the risks to physical health, I would maybe talk about the threat it poses to the health of your marriage. I might talk about the impact that it has on children. But that's not where Paul goes in this text. He goes a lot deeper than that because he's interested in showing us how gospel truth undergirds the ethical framework of the Christian life. Here's where Paul takes it. He says, if you're in Christ, you're Christ's limbs and organs... But when you join yourself to a prostitute, you become one flesh with her. Christ doesn't do that. Christ isn't about that. Yet, you're bringing a member of the body of Christ into a profound and mystical but sinful union. And when you do that, when you take Christ's body and you wrestle it away and you join it to sexual immorality, you are literally tearing yourself apart at the level of your identity. You are assaulting yourself. This is what Paul means when he says that when a person sins sexually, he sins against his own body. You say, wait a second, what about getting drunk and getting sick from that? What about, you know, suicide? Aren't those sins against the body? Not in the way Paul's talking about. Because what we're doing is we're taking the body of Christ, who we really are, and we're joining that with a one flesh relationship with someone who's, uh, who we're not married to. We're tearing ourselves apart. We're ripping ourselves away from who we are. You cannot take what is joined to the Lord Jesus and join it in sexual sin without doing violence to who you are on a fundamental level. It's like on a spiritual plane, your very being is dissolving. This is what he means when he says you're sinning against your own body. You know what I've noticed in my short time in ministry? I've noticed that Christians who live in immorality like this suffer deeply in the area of mental health. It's just an observation. 
Christians who live this way suffer. They, they take the body of Christ, they tear it away, and they engage in sexual sin, and they very quickly begin to break down on a psychological level. Why are they doing Why? Why, does it, why do they suffer in this way? Because they're tearing apart themselves at the very core of who they are. They're destroying themselves at the level of their identity, and the mind, the heart, the emotions, the will, they cannot handle that, so the person begins to almost lose his mind. What I mean is that if you're a Christian and you're engaging in this kind of behavior, you've probably started to notice that you're, you're not emotionally or mentally healthy right now. And what I want to say is this, what did you expect? I don't mean to be unkind, but what do you expect is going to happen when you take who you are and you tear yourself apart? How can you assault your very identity? How can you take the body of Christ and tear it apart without the mental and emotional and spiritual consequences being felt on a deep and profound level? And what you'll find is that if you walk in the light, if you take those things and you bring them out to the light of the word of God and under the accountability of the people of God, immediately you'll begin to find relief. Not pointing fingers at somebody else, not making excuses for what you wanted to do, not trying to solve it through medication, not trying to make excuses, but bringing it to God's people, bringing it to the word of God and saying, God, I've done it. I've done this, this is a choice that I've made, and I need to bring it to you, and I need your healing. And what you'll find is that Christ is right there, and he's ready to receive you. He's ready to heal. Lie number one, sexual integrity is optional. Lie number two, I should use it before I lose it. Lie number three, it's not anybody else's business. Lie number four, Casual sex is fun and healthy. And then in verses 19 and 20, Paul addresses lie number five. My body belongs to me. My body belongs to me. To who do you belong? Well, that's easy. I belong to me. Wrong. No matter who you are, you were made by God. That means you belong to him because he made you. But if you're a believer... There's a deeper level of ownership. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Not only do you belong to God because he made you, you belong to God because he bought you. Christ paid the price to buy you from the slave market of sin. You don't belong to Satan. You don't belong to yourself. Now you belong to Jesus Christ. And what he does is he takes his people, his possession, his treasure, your body and soul, and he makes you into his dwelling place. His temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying, see, we say this phrase all the time. It's become one of these things we borrowed from the Bible and twisted the meaning. My body is a temple, so I'm going to go to the spa this week. <laughs> it's not what it's talking about. Sorry, to bust your bubble. So you can't use that one anymore. What it means is that what is true of the body of Christ corporately, all of us, the church as the temple of God in Christ is true as well of the individual Christian. That Christ is with 
you. What, what, what is true of the church is true of you. The Holy Spirit takes up residence, not just in the church, but in the Christian. You say, Jake, I've messed up. My life is a wreck. It's too late for me. All this stuff you're talking about just goes to show I'm broken. I'm filthy. I'm trash. I'm done. Wait a second. Think about what Paul is saying. He's saying to the Corinthians, who, by the way, had lived sordid lives. You were slaves to sin. And Christ bought you out. He redeemed you. You were visiting the brothels, but Christ bought you away. You were going to commit immorality, but Christ pulled you out of that. And now he wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to have, he wants to take up residence in you. He wants to be that close. You aren't trash. Your body isn't trash. If you're a believer, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing more wonderful than that. That's not just religious talk. That's God telling you that he chose to be that close to you. That he chose to go after you. That he chose to pursue you. That this was his desire. So stop moping. Stop running the other direction back to your sin. Run to him. You can trust him. You don't have to protect yourself from him. He's the one that ought to be protecting you from your sin. Say, Jake, what now? First of all, if you aren't a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you can see that this passage shows us exactly why you need Jesus today. Because your body, yourself, wasn't created for sin, it wasn't created to serve you. It was created for God's glory. And you cannot bring him glory on your own because sin has sort of twisted your heart. So you need somebody to come, not you, but somebody from the outside and save you from that. Because you're enslaved in one way or another to sin and you need someone to rescue you from that sin. And there is no one else that can rescue you from sin but Jesus Christ. He is the one who died for you. He is the one who was raised for you, and you need forgiveness. So call out to him, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I believe you paid the price on the cross so that I could be rescued. I believe that you were raised for me. Maybe you're a believer, and yet you've been basing your life on a lie. Maybe you've been saying, well, it's optional. I don't want to be a super Christian. So I'm going to go along with the world. Or you've been saying, well, you, you, you only live once. I better use it before I lose it. Have some fun while I have the chance. Maybe you've said, you know what, stay out of my business. Maybe you've said, what's the problem? It's just casual. It's no big deal. Maybe you've said, you know what, my body belongs to me. What I do with it is my choice. All of those, friends, listen to me, are lies. 
and it's time to leave them behind along with the sin of sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul says. That's not legalistic. That's not being prudish. That's not him being traditional or old-fashioned. It's biblical, and it's absolutely necessary for you, believer. Run from it. Hate it. Kill it. Find your joy not in the fleeting pleasures of sin, but in the fellowship that you have with the eternal God as his holy temple. Sex is never casual. It's supremely important. But it doesn't have to be destructive. In fact, it's a, it's a major part of God's plan for many believers, as we'll see in, in chapter 7. But let's just make a commitment today that we're not going to keep this area of our life closed off from Christ, like this little shrine, this little idol temple that we have in our hearts that's set apart for sexual sin, because that part of your heart, that's really the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit as well, and that's his property, and you need to open the doors, let him in, let him clean it out. So let's do that today. Let's open up. Let's let the light of Christ shine in. Let's believe the truth and let's live like we believe it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your people and, and the desire that this church has for truth. Lord, I just want to pray for, for those in this moment who are caught up in this, in this sin, they're, they're kind of stuck, and the thing that's holding them there is shame. I pray that you would just free them from that in this moment. Because all of us, if we really knew each other, we would be shocked. Shocked not only at the depth of our sin, but shocked at just how amazing the grace of Christ is. And so, Father, I pray that you would just set aside our pride, that you would just uh, kill the, the shame that, that holds us back from the things that we need to pursue that will help us to walk in holiness. And I pray that in this moment we would respond obediently to the word. The, the choice is clear. The, the commands are clear. We've got to flee sexual immorality because that kind of sexual sin is never a casual thing. Lord, help us in this moment to respond faithfully to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.